This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is burning questions, not people. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Nat Turney. I'm with my brother, John. We are your hostesses with the most hostesses. Hey, hi, John. Hi, John. <laughs> hey, all right. If not, nothing, if not consistent. And this is the podcast we have called This Is Not Church. And uh, we are really, really excited about our next guest. Her new book is about to drop. I think it comes out next month or month after, October-ish, right? And this is uh, Becca McNeil. So her new book is called Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down, uh, A Guide for Parents Questioning Their Faith. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about her, and then we're going to jump into an awesome conversation. So uh, Becca McNeil is a journalist, wife, and mother of two. Her work has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, Relevant, The Texas Tribune, ESPN 39. What is that? E- there's, there's weird symbols in this, John. ESPN, hashtag 39. What, what, the, hell, what the hell is that, dude? Uh, on the I mean, back of the book, it says ESPN's The Undefeated. So maybe that oh, got Oh, it replaced some of the things. with. Okay, so I'm going to read it the way it says, though. ESPN, Amperstan, hashtag 39, semicolon S. <laughs> 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 if only to prove that, that I can fucking do it, man. Um, <laughs> the Christian Science Monitor, Texas Public Radio, and elsewhere. Um, that should be ESPN 39. The, the ESPN's the undefeated. Let's, let's talk about that. I'll, I'll get it right. In addition to pieces about parenting, she writes about education, immigration, and faith communities, as well as the occasional op-ed calling the American evangelical church to lay down its idols of white supremacy and patriarchy, a worthy, worthy cause indeed. So welcome to the podcast, Becca McNeil. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Kids are back in school and I feel like I've gotten a routine back in my life. So Right. Hallelujah. Doesn't yeah. it seem weird though to some as a guy that grew up in Northern California where we went to school in September for God's sakes. Yeah. It feels like they keep pushing it back and back. Well, this year um, was better than last year with the pandemic recovery stuff. Um last yeah. year our summer was four four weeks, I think. Wow. I was like, this is basically year-round school. So and, on top of all that, they just screwed you out of most of your summer too. Yeah, except that, as you know, living in Texas, like it's not like we were going outside anyway, and my this children are young. So <laughs> you want to take them and put them in your air conditioning, fine. That's fine. That's fine. I can turn mine down for the day and save some money. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's not happening. In my house, we crank it up to whatever. But uh, yeah, you're in one of my favorite cities in, in Texas, in San Antonio. We, My wife and I, Actually, when we first moved to Texas, uh, we went to San Antonio all the time, and then we went to Austin. And then we're like, well, being from Northern California, Austin is a little bit close to home for me. It's full of the kinds of people that I feel comfortable around, you know, the tattooed and the dreadlocked and the, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, your beard would fit right in. 
I'm like, yes, this is, I, I just need to breathe in a little bit of bohemian culture for a minute before I go back to, to yeah. here. So. And San Antonio's <laughs> um, is growing. I'll say that. Like my sister's a big part of it. She's a stick and poke tattoo artist. She's oh, fantastic wow. and very much plugged into the growing bohemian world of San Antonio. And I, it's yeah. fun to, she gives me, uh, me, her very uncool older sister, some entree. <laughs> Oh, there you go. I'm actually really surprised how much um, just, and we're not here to talk about San Antonio, I guess, but San Antonio has grown in general. Yeah. yeah. It's just, uh, it's just ballooned in size over the last 10 or 12 years. So yeah, Um, it is a great city. We do love it. And uh, we're glad that you're close to me anyway in Texas and John's up there in the mountains of Northern California. Which is where I love bad. So yeah. Yeah. One one is where my head is and one is where the rest of me is. That's right. (laughs) I'll be, I'll be in Northern California soon enough. So. So yeah. we're, we're planning a visit, but let's talk about this. Let, well, actually, before we talk about the book, our sort of standard opening salvo of a question is to just have you maybe give us a rundown of your of your faith journey, a little bit about your background, and just kind of just sure. get us up to speed with all of that, if you, if you don't mind. So, so go really, I'm going to open with that. I was texting with some friends who are all kind of on the same. We were talking about how I'm about to make a physical gesture that's not going to come through for the. <laughs> picture a graph where things go downhill, plateau, downhill, plateau, uphill, plateau. We were talking about how our faith journey is very similar. Like you'll go through the yeah. season of radical change and then you kind of plateau for a little while and the season of radical change. And then you, you're you like, okay, I, this is good for now. And we were talking about how this season is just the shrug season. Mm. <laughs> so I was asking, yeah. uh, there was... I've got some big thing coming up and I said, Hey, uh, prayers or incantations or whatever we're doing now if, would be appreciated. <laughs> and everybody laughed and they're like, yeah, what are we doing now? And I said, shrugging. And then I said, and then we laughed because I was like, and I'm going to go on some podcasts this week where I'm probably going to have to talk about what I believe. But <laughs> the truth is that I have, there have been I, probably just inflection moments in my faith journey from hardcore evangelical, like grew up in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, the like evangelical, super conservative version of Presbyterianism. In the, I was born in 1984. So born into the Reagan years, all the way up through the purity culture, you know, yeah. contemporary Christian music, the whole thing of the nineties. Went to the master's college in Ooh. Southern California with John MacArthur and worked for Worldview Academy, which is an ultra conservative, um, apologetics camp for teenagers. Um, and then I went to the London School of Economics and had my first big, like eye opening exposure to other ideas and other people and the world. And that was kind of, you know, earth shake number one. And, then I came back and like tried to start my like a career in ministry and tried to kind of put it back together and make sense of it. And then that melted down, which was kind of earth shake number two. And then I kind of got to a, another place where I could hang for a while and was okay with gray areas, was okay saying, okay, I believe this. Do I care if other people believe this? Where, you know, what? Do I go to church? Do I just sit in church? Do I just go take communion? Because I don't really like pastors. Amen. No offense to anyone. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, I don't like him either. And I is one. I get deep, you. Deeply suspicious. And Amen. 
then I had kids. And that's actually where the book came from is the next big earth shake was having kids and having to answer their questions and come to some more expressible versions of my faith because I needed to communicate that or at least explain why we do some of the things we do. And at the same time, life getting just more real because I had kids and they are stressful (laughs) and I needed something (laughs) a little more durable than what I had come up with. And so that's where I've landed is a much more, and I don't want to say mystical because I think that word's getting thrown around a lot right now, but a much less okay, here's the characters. Here's what they want. Here's what they're about. This is God. Meet God. He's this. He's that. He's that. You know, here's Jesus. Here's what Jesus is about. And much more of a, these are the major themes that all of humanity has been seeking. And here's what it looked like for some. Here's what it looks like for others. You grew up in a Christian household. This is how you were taught to understand God. You saw you were taught to understand these various forces, evil, whatever. That's the same journey that everybody else has been on. You understand it this way, and that's that's valid. And so I've stayed in, I would say, like the Christian faith tradition, but with much less of a certainty-based, you know, let's get everything orthodox and neatly tied up around the edges, and much more of a... um wisdom seeking and wisdom can come from a lot of different places because we are humans on this with a hunger for transcendence. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing I really appreciate so far about the book is that for me, it feels it filling a, a needed void, I think, hmm. um, because as many of us have deconstructed, one of the things that, that has needed the most attention is, okay, what it's, and I think, I think you say it like this essentially is, you know, it was one thing to deconstruct for me. You know, I can take ownership of my own faith journey. I, I'm fine with being wrong and being right, whatever. It doesn't, it affects me. And then when my kids became a part of that story, I had to be then cognizant of how those, how those changes affected them. So my story is a little different though. My kids were in their teens and early twenties and I had to deal with the, well, now you get cool. Backlash because I was a heavy dad. Yeah, wait (laughs) a minute. Hold on. So, and I, you know, I remember having a conversation with my then sixteen-year-old son as I'm reading Rob Bell's Love Wins, and he's like, "What's that about, Dad?" I'm like, "What's a well? It's about hell and whether or not it's you know what we've been taught." And he's and he so he reads this book and devours it and loves it and comes away with a real new appreciation for. you know, a God of mercy and love. And maybe, maybe we don't know as much as we think we know. And maybe there's room in there for God to, to be differently than, to be different than he's been portrayed. And, uh, and I'm, and I was jealous. Like, I wish I'd had that at 16, but I did get some of that. I, the only, I tell people all the time, and maybe you can, maybe you can um, speak to this in, this in a sec, but if I, I don't have, I don't have many regrets in life, but the one thing I would do is I wish I could go back in time and parent differently. Right. I wish I could. I don't, I mean, if we are all growing and progressing and getting more wise, I don't know if anyone can avoid that. (laughs) No, I don't think so, for sure. Because hopefully I understand things better in 20 years, but by then my kids will be grown. 
And so I think that there's some degree of regret that's inevitable. And part of kind of what I wanted to get at in the book was that there's a difference between that, like your answers changing or whatever, and getting it wrong. Like we're so yeah. obsessed with like, okay, there is a perfect way to raise these children. And if you don't get it right there, you're screwing them up. And I kind of fundamentally, you know, after a lot of reading and interviewing and searching was thinking, I mean, yeah, they need connection to you. They need attachment. They need, if you can give them belonging, like I love you unconditionally and you're safe with me. A lot of that other stuff is not as guaranteed to do what you hope it's going to do. And also not as, not as dire if you don't do it. For sure. So it was kind of like this rejection of the perfectionism that we'd kind of been taught to include in our parenting, both from religion and from capitalism. Yeah, no, there's so much, so many of those isms, right, that we have to overcome the consumerism and the, you know, militarism and mm-hmm. you know, all the, all the, you know, if you were, you were raised, sounds like you were raised in a very similar version of Christianity that John and I were, we, we were in PCA, um, but we were still pretty right wing evangelical. Even our non denominational churches tended to be, you know, politically aligned a certain way. And so even as I deconstructed, that part of the part of what deconstruction did for me was unearth some of that that had kind of gone so deeply. I didn't even realize how much it affected me. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. I mean, I remember reading Brian John's Farewell to Arms or Farewell to Mars. Um, Farewell to Arms would have been a good one. Now yeah. somebody Hemingway one. wrote that already. So, uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> he writes a Farewell to Mars, and I'm reading through this book, and it's really all about violence and about nationalism and about you know the way that the Christian Church has allied itself with a certain brand of politics and. It was that book, I call it a watershed for me because some of that was in me and so deeply in me that I didn't realize it was there, but it really had colored the way I saw things. And so that was a really interesting process of rooting some of that out and going, okay, no, 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 no version of this nationalism, whether it's based in white supremacy or not, whatever it is, it it has to go, cannot coexist with Jesus. It just, it simply can't, um, especially to the degree that the evangelical church seems to have embraced it. So I, I know that that was, that's a similar theme that kind of goes through your book too as well, right? As, as you're coming into some, maybe some different political awareness, um, what were, what were some of those things that kind of struck you immediately? So the first big thing, so I left for graduate school in the UK during the Bush administration and the Iraq war. And, the Christians at home were all behind George Bush. And this Absolutely. was a this was a holy war for them in a lot yes. of ways. Bomb them for Jesus. Yeah. Well, and you know, powers and principalities and, and you know and oil and oil and, <laughs> and, and military industrial complex. Yeah, all that. Yeah, exactly. And but to be in a place where people didn't have that America centric starting point where we have to justify everything America does because America is a Christian nation. So I don't, I don't weigh its actions on its own. I just assume that they're right and then adjust my worldview accordingly. So war is justified if it's our war. Suffering is justified if we're causing it. And to be in a place where just no one else agreed with that because they weren't Americans (laughs) um, was my first like, oh, okay, well, like this can't be the essential thing. 
And it was that simple. And, and like, it's embarrassing to me that that's how provincial I was at that point that this, I hadn't considered how big the world was until I got in it. And that, cause before that, the rest of the world was missions. Like you encountered them through missions, trying to like win them to your worldview and to be in a position of learning from them instead was, was radically altering. So I would say that was the first, um, like it pulled the keystone from the whole thing. And then we start to crumble because you, you start to work it backwards and realize, um, oh, so much of this is just about trying to define an in-group and an out-group. Yeah. Yeah, for and, sure. And that's, yeah. I think that's why the evangelical church ties itself so tightly to nationalism is because that's the project. Yeah. It's defining an yeah. us that we can root for so that and we can overcome them. Yeah. My, I don't want to say it's the, it was the final straw, but one of the, one of the last connections with me and the faith was on a missions trip. Um, we went, we went to Jamaica right out. It was like 88. It was right after a really big hurricane had come through Jamaica. And, you know, we went there under the guys that were going to help them restore this summer camp, right? That they had that we're going to help in some way rebuild it or something. That's kind of the guys that we were given, right? That, uh, there was a lot of devastation after this hurricane. We got there and yeah, we weren't. That's not what we were there to do. We didn't do that. We were there specifically to tell them how we had a better version of Christianity than they did. And yeah, and I, I really, I was super uncomfortable the whole time we were there. Um, I was already questioning my faith journey and why we did what we did. And at one point I even went up to our counselor and said, um, I don't think, I don't think that's why we're supposed to be here. I really don't think it was after this really weird, uh, night of prayer in the women's side. And it got really kind of mystical because, you know, there's a lot of other faiths within Jamaica that have connections to Christianity, but, but they have created their own version of, you know, you know, you got the Rastafarians and all that. And, uh, it, the counselors felt it got out of control and they, and they put the hammer down and stopped it. And, um, that's when I was like, I, I think we're, I think we're messing up here. I, th- I think we're, we're, we're pushing something onto them that doesn't, would, has never been their, their way. Uh, they aren't Americans. They don't look at God the same way we do. And I think we're really messing up here. And I just got the, uh, the, the, like, well, we can talk about this later. And that was really kind of the end of it for me. And when I, when we got back to the States, uh, I started really questioning stuff. And Nat, Nat knows this journey and, you know, about, Probably a year later, I walked away from church completely. So I was about 19 when I left church. But what's interesting and what, what Nat, what Nat and you are talking about that is so, it's so pervasive, right? So I left the church at 19. You would think that I could get myself out of that mindset. And then 9-11 happens, right? And I'm waving a flag. I'm pissed off at my, my, the corporation I work for because they won't, they won't put a flag out in front of our, in front of our building. I, I mean, I, I told them you either put up a flag. Or during the middle of the night, I'm going to come put one up. I mean, I was that pissed off that they wouldn't fly a flag during this time. And I was 100% behind the war. I thought we should do this. Um, and it was so easy to fall back into that nationalism that I thought I had lost, that I thought I had disconnected from. 
because it was so ingrained in us, even at a young age, that God and America are pretty much the same thing. Oh yeah, we're the country right. built on Christian ideals or whatever. Right. So it was it was shocking and horrifying as I started to step away and actually look at and, and start to analyze what we were doing and how we were doing it and how I was being influenced by this again. Mm-hmm. And it was embarrassing. Yeah. You know, I look back, you know, Facebook, luckily, and before that, MySpace, um, you know, luckily gives me a very good view of who I was. And it's, sometimes it's really embarrassing. Yeah. And I really don't want those memories to come up because, you know, I became very pro America, pro America first, you know, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. before Trump saying it. Right. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, I was shocked how easily I was manipulated back into it, I guess is what I was getting at. Yeah. And it, I think that there's all sorts of those deep. Another version of that is a lot of like during the 2020 Black Lives Matter, the summer of Black Lives Matter, a lot of pastors kind of had this moment where they decided they wanted to, you know, be part of whatever racial righteousness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then are still not affirming still, you know, not ordaining women, still not all of this stuff, and still very much holding on to the many ways the evangelical church privileges power and money, and not seeing that the root of what the Black Lives Matter movement is talking about and the root of a lot of other liberation movements that they're coming from the same thing. So there's this desire to say, like, I can still believe in complementarianism, but not, but still be like all for liberation and whatnot. And there's not a, I don't want to change the way I'm reading the Bible. I don't want to change my hermeneutic. I don't want to change my, my fundamental beliefs, but I want to change like the, the fruit that came out of it. Like I want to take my apple tree and cover it in oranges. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of, I think where a lot of people are is during, you know, when the fruit got yucky, did you dig into it and say like, Oh, whoa, wait, why does this tree produce this? And let's get down to the roots and whoa, what was planted in here? Or do you just pick off all the trees, all the fruit and be like, no, no, still good tree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's. <laughs> The problem with it is, and maybe this is just sort of baked into the whole evangelical mindset, but um, so much of what they, and they, and by they, I mean me, because that was me for a very long time. And, and whether or not it still is, it still is a part of me, I guess. Um, but so much of, of what they do and what they believe is predicated on, on a certain kind of certainty. Exactly. That, 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 I think that's why deconstruction for evangelicals in particular is so potentially devastating. Yes. Um, because it's, it's, it's so countercultural to question mm-hmm. and it's so countercultural to doubt that when you finally give in, when the dam finally breaks, everything goes with it. Yes. Um, all of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if that was your experience. It was my experience. I, in fact, uh, I really, I loved even just in your introduction. Um, by the way, um, buy the book. I'm going to say this 10 more times before we go through here because I don't want to get off the topic of buy the book. Thank um, you. <laughs> because it's compelling. It pulls you along. But I was, I, I so related to your, your, your attempt to leave Christianity 
and your and your failure to do so. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so maybe if you would just give us, you know, I don't want you to give too much of the book away because you know, buy the book. But that mirrored my own story a lot, and I and actually mirrors quite a few people's stories. But what was your what was your experience with that? Trying, you know, like you know, I'd love to just not be a Christian anymore. It would be so easy. But, so much. Well, I say that, and yet because what you said about when you start to leave and it all, you're losing everything. I think there is this moment of anxiety and frustration where you're just like, fuck all that. (laughs) Like I'm done and you want to walk away. And I think that's a sign of just how complete the takeover of the human is in certainty-based religion. Yeah. Where it's running your social world, it's running the way you relate to your job, you know, um, the way you relate to authority, the way you relate to your kids, the environment, everything. It's telling you who to vote for. I mean, it's so total. Like I had so many chapters to write in that book because of how many things I was told to be certain about. So there was just so much to rethink. But at the heart of it, for the people who have actually, and this is what, like the beautiful thing in the middle of all of it, and something that I have seen both logically and in prayer, in like contemplative prayer, is that there was, there was something going on behind the scenes. There was a, there's a spiritual life that was not at all being cultivated by me because I was cultivating a good argument and good behavior and all of that. But there was a spiritual reality that was happening. And I I truly do believe that we are spiritual creatures and that the connection to God has an effect. And so what I kept finding was that that connection still existed and had been Kind of while the war was going on out front, the way I would visualize it is that God had been kind of protecting a little project behind the scenes and that being my actual soul. And so my actual soul um, knew God. And I do think that the reason I didn't just say, okay, and you know people who, I know so many people who've done that, who their experience with religion, their experience of life hasn't actually introduced them to God. You know, not that they have a spirit and that spirit can connect to God, but they haven't been given actual introduction to that. Like they they haven't, they don't have the words, they haven't had the experience, they haven't seen that community. And enough of my experience had been authentically that, like there had been real prayer, there had been sincere love, there had been a feeling of acceptance from God, even if the people were terrifying. (laughs) My parents, my parents did a good job of like letting me know I was loved. And so there had been enough that at the end of the day, when everything else, when the politics and the performance and everything else was falling apart, my soul would go back to Jesus. And I think that that's kind of what I describe in this like I can leave the, I can stop going to church. I can vote for a Democrat. <laughs> I can um, do a lot of things, it, and still 
my soul turns to, you know, Jesus for answers. And that's, and it just wouldn't go away. Yeah. Well, the scary, the, the scary part, I think, for the Western evangelical church is when they, when they see people within their church or their group start questioning certainty, right? And then embracing this idea of uncertainty of, of the mystery of God. And this, like this, the thing you says where your soul knows God. And I believe that every soul knows God. And then you have to start looking at people outside of your own faith and saying, okay, well, their soul knows God. And maybe the way they are connecting with God is appropriate for them. And the certainty of Western evangelical church can't allow that because that means that they have found God without the proper, and that's again in air quotes, <clears throat> without the proper path to God, which is the Western evangelical mindset of how that happens, right? Asking Jesus into your heart, obeying all the rules and doing all of that. And th that breaks down that idea that that is, that other people can have a connection with the divine without their rules. And that scares the shit out of them. Okay, so as a journalist, I'm cynical. I mean, you follow the money, you look at who stands to benefit. Right. And so when I hear you say that, my mind immediately goes, well, yeah, they don't want them. It removes their power right. if you can get it somewhere else. Yep. And I do think that while there are tons of sincere, there are people who sincerely don't want other people to go to hell. I believe that. I believe that there are Within fundamentalist Christianity, there are people who have believed that this is just how the world works. And they're looking around, not wanting their kids and friends and neighbors to go to hell. And so they, they take these stances that we would kind of look at as really rigid and unloving. Right. But based on what they believe. Now, I do believe that those people are separate <laughs> from the system that has created a lot of certainty-based religion in order to hold power. Right. And I, I was even doing a lot of research now on suffering for another project, and I was looking at how the church has kind of manufactured a certain level of in, like existential suffering and guilt because it keeps you coming back. It keeps you yeah. come like well, where can I go to address this guilt and address, where can I go to get help for this suffering? I can go to church. And if right. I go to church, I tithe or I give alms or whatever, you know, so. Right. Well, it's weird then too, talking about suffering because depending on which tradition you come at suffering from, you know, certain traditions sacralize that, mm -hmm. right? Uh -huh. I mean, suffering is good. Suffering is is what you know, brings about maturity in your soul is how you, you know, and so, and I think that was maybe an answer to things that were uncontrollable, unchangeable. Sure. So we might as well at least try to mine some good out of it. Sure. So now suffering is something we, we not only tolerate, but sometimes you could look back through some older Catholic tradition and, and see the people inflicted suffering upon themselves. So that, yeah, right. And then you come to the modern day, 20th, 21st century sort of word of faith, name it and claim it crowd, and they see all that suffering as proof that you're living a life of sin. So that's God's curse. Poverty is a curse. Suffering is a curse. Um, all of this is proof that you are somehow out of the will of God. And so, and that's just two. Yeah. 
start yeah. looking at this very complex idea and coming up with some some bedrock of certainty um, that are both to the, to various degrees bullshit. I think that take an easy way out of explaining something as complex as suffering um, and how or why or if God allows it or whatever. Because at the core of it, there are these questions that are unanswerable. Exactly. And I think um, I'm going to plug another book, an older book. John Swinton wrote Raging with Compassion. Mm. It's basically a, he takes theodicy, that question you're bringing Mm -hmm. up of like, why does God allow suffering? He says, we don't know. We can't know. It's, that is a distraction. What we need to focus on is, as the people of God or the church or whatever, is being with people in their suffering and helping them either alleviate it or endure it because some the fact of the matter is you can't avoid all of it and so you you need a certain level of ability and equipment to get through it but when it can be alleviated it's good to alleviate it and he said you know it we our time would be better focused on that and it's more like god to be with you than to explain himself or yeah. herself or God's self. Herself or itself or God's yeah, self. God's self. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you're 100% right. John and I have had a couple guys on the on the podcast who um, sort of fall in the sort of in the open relational theology camp, right? And so, um, for example, Thomas, Thomas Ord has written a really interesting book called God Can't, where he postulates it's not that God won't, it's that some of these things we expect of God, he's simply unable to do. And that is an uncomfortable position for any good God-fearing evangelical to ever even ponder, let alone, you know, perhaps even endorse. But, and I'm not sure where I am with him on that. You know, I get it. But I do like that it takes the arbitrariness out of it. Because what you're left with a lot of times, and you talk about prayer quite a bit here, is is when you do come to God in prayer, and it's some, sometimes it seems like some people get their prayers answered and some people don't. And so God can except here he didn't and here he did. Now he's just arbitrary, right? Or we sell a system like our, like our Word of Faith brothers and sisters do, um, where they create this elaborate system of levers and pulleys. And if you have this much faith and you tie this much to your church, and if you do, you know, you play all those things correctly, then God is somehow, actually, he's, he's, he's supposed to come through for you. Yeah. And so, And it's yeah, all, it's to me, it's all the anxiety of a God we can't control and trying to turn it into a way that we can control you. Because we don't want you questioning God because that might lead you off on your own little adventure. But we can, you know, on the other side, we can get a lot out of you. If we be- if you believe that you can get everything you want from God and you believe that this uncontrollable God can be controlled, we can control you. And I think that you just see a lot of that. And in the center of, of like, I've been reading a lot of the Stoics lately or like Buddhism and Paul is influenced by the Stoics. And so Paul's views on suffering have been horribly co-opted and interpreted, I think, by the church. I, I agree. But understood more as like a man of his time and a mystic and a, you know, and a Stoic type. And a Stoic. rhetorician, yeah. You see a lot more... Uh, and like I was reading Henry Nouwen's The Wounded Healer, and he talks about oh, Jesus gosh, yeah. being both an internal reflector, like he he was deeply concerned with alignment of the self to God and a revolutionary. And you have it, we, what we have, and I, I touch on this in the book, is that 
even as parents, like if you're so addicted to certainty, you can be a certainty-based progressive. You can oh, yeah. be, um, you 100%. need to like say the, say the stations of the cross, but they're like putting your pronouns in your bio and doing, you know, all these right. other things. They're fine and whatnot, but you can be really rigid about it. And so I think that you have people who want to say the path to holiness is through revolution, is through fighting systemic injustice, it's through, you know, decolonizing everything. And then you have the ones, who, kind of the older school evangelicals that say, no, it's personal holiness. It's rooting out sin from your life. And, you know, and Henry Nouwen points out, like, Jesus was both of those things. Jesus brought together, like, the reality of the inward man and the inward man's effect on the world. And I think raising kids in that is infinitely more challenging than raising kids who know how to go to protest and know how to like, you know, go through the motions of this or kids who know how to go to church every weekend and say they're sorry. <laughs> no, that's it, very interesting that, uh, first of all, I love Henry Nowen. If you ever want to get in touch, we have, uh, uh, John and I have interviewed um, Carolyn Whitney Brown mm. and she wrote, she finished Henry Nowen's final book, completed it for him, but she was also a really, really good friend and she's got some really good insights into his just, just, just as a, from a biographer standpoint, he's an amazing guy, and I wish, I wish he had lived longer, because mm-hmm. I don't know, um, yeah. he's he's not, he was never very vocal about his about his sexuality, right? Because um, he could not be, right? I would love to have seen him come into his own, yeah, as more of an ally and an advocate. But that being said, there's so much of that. What you just said about about. The ability to be rigid and fundamentalist that is not exclusive to God, right? Right. I, I like guys like Richard Dawkins. They piss me off endlessly they're, because they are so fucking rigid. Yes. And they're every bit as fundamentalist as the religious people that they critique. And they read the Bible the same way as those guys that yeah. they critique. There's no nuance in the way they read the Bible because it wouldn't serve their purpose. Exactly. And Karen Armstrong is obviously the like, you know, on this because yeah, exactly. she talks about really you have the enlightenment coming in and talking about how we how we read the bible the enlightenment is what dictates all of this and what i love about the with the postcolonial scholars and a lot of this energy and the culture right now of like dismantling white supremacy and all that stuff as trendy as it's gotten it speaks to the fact that this conversation about the Bible and fundamentalism versus rationalism has all been had in a, no offense guys, but between white men. Absolutely. (laughs) It's all been had within a framework of this is how, like a certain way of knowing and other ways of knowing have not been allowed in and other frameworks have not been allowed in. So a post-colonial reading. So you've got like these amazing African post-colonial female scholars reading and interpreting the Bible. You've got Angela Parker here doing womanist interpretation of the New Testament. And all of that kind of takes this old culture war, white guys fighting conversation about the Bible. (laughs) versus science or whatever, and says, oh, we don't even have to, we don't have to limit it to that. That you don't have to just win the, and again, you don't have to just win the argument that it's about living and belonging and, and 
other ways of knowing God and each other. Yeah. If I, if, if I see one more seminar online of a bunch of white, old white guys talking about how we can end racism (laughs) without a single person of color in their panel, it's amazing. Or yeah. how, how we can, how we can look at, you know, women as theology and there's not a single woman on, on the panel. Hey, or, you know, I mean, look out for uh, my next book on feminist theology, John, where yeah. I will cite no women. Um, no women. I will, yeah. no. That's what I mean, it's called. That's the title. Cite no women. We called Cite No Women, <laughs> a white male perspective on women as theology. And it will be exact two pages long because it will be horseshit. But, I mean, it, <laughs> It would take you all of a minute to do like a Google search and find some uh, some talk about you know with either racism you know women in in ministry um, the LGBTQIA plus community within the ministry or within the church and they won't have a single person from that community on their panel and yeah. it's like wake up old white men yeah but if that doesn't just have you noticed this Becca and maybe again I'm not I'm not in your circles or necessarily but but. It still seems like even inside of this world of deconstruction, even inside of this world of, of, of say, book publishing and things like that, white males are still pushing the agenda. I mean, it feels like the women are having to scratch and claw still. I mean, I, I, John and I go to great lengths to, to make sure that our, uh, our, our guest list is diverse. I love, and we yeah, have blog, I, love I mean, because, list, well, we went, if you look through our first five or six episodes, you will not see that. And then John and I were like, what the hell are we doing? Like we've had like five interviews in a row with guys like us, our age, our eth- you know, our ethnicity, our so we got to do better. Well, so much of it is just who you know, and but yeah, the right. myth of the world obviously is that the world runs on anything else. You know, well, and to the defense of you know people of color and uh, women and people from the LGBTQIA community, when they see people like us. The, their first thought is going to be, I don't know if I can trust these guys. Sure. You know, sure. why would I, why would I go on their podcast? Why would I go on to their, you know, the, their seminar or whatever when all I've ever seen from those type of people is shame, putting me down, treating me like an other, uh, making me less than, right? So it was for us, it was a conscious effort of trying to reach out to people and say, you know, just give us a shot. I think I think we can show you a different side of who we are and the and the challenges and the and the and where we are trying to go and where we are trying to move towards you know a more holistic a more freeing a more understanding world right yeah. and there's a role for allyship there's a role right. absolutely yeah coming to get your people in that in a perfect world yes we would all listen to people who are not like us and we wouldn't need people you know, signing off on it or co-signing or saying like, I, my name is white woman. I approve this message. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't need that, but many people do. And so I've, I've talked with a good friend of mine. Um, she's all about empowerment in her community. She's African-American. She's working in Georgia. She's all about her community. And she's like, I'm not really worried about your community. I'm not really here to like, disabuse you guys of your mis- misunderstanding or whatever. She said, but I'm welcoming co-conspirators in my agenda. And if you want to come support me, great. And so we have a lot of really fruitful conversations about working together on stuff and who who needs to address that? Who needs to put themselves in that situation? Who needs to be talking to that group? And 
And then the next level, like, and who's getting paid and platforms and all that. And it's complicated and it's complex and you have to get into it. And I think there's a difference though, between a, for instance, like a be the bridge group that's broken out into affinity groups where you have white people talking to white people about anti-racism versus a panel of all men, you know, who have, are being asked to come in as an authority on feminism for a general audience, you know, to basically say, this is a threat, but we're a safe presence and you can trust us because we're not self-interested. And that's one of the big myths that has kept the certainty-based church, be it evangelicalism or other, from growing a lot is not growing in numbers, but growing in maturity is this viewing of every other voice as a threat and needing that safe, trusted voice of the authority, white, typically the white male authority, to say, yes, this is true. And so you, what you do is you filter in then only the women who see it the same way, only the people of color sure. who see it yeah. the same way. And yeah. then you have tokenism and you have all this other stuff. So there's just it's complicated and it's frustrating and you have to have humility to engage it. And I think that that's just frustrating for people who've gotten used to efficiency. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, uh, yeah, you know, kind enough. of bringing it back to some of the ideas in the book and, you know, how to, how to bring up kids in this kind of environment, right? One of the things I've noticed, um, again, specifically with my kids, I can't, I can't say the same for other kids, but their generation just gets this so much better than we ever did. You know, I had to, learn, relearn, dump a bunch of shit, relearn again, dump a bunch more shit, relearn again. And it just seems like their generation has so inherently understood like like something as simple as, hey, I got a, I, I got a bunch of white guys telling me about racism. It's like, that's stupid. Why would I ever listen to them? I mean, they don't even need to, it's like almost like it's already there. They understand that. I would go to, I would listen to people of color before I listened to these bunch of old white guys telling me about racism. And they, some of the hangups that we have, right? I'm not, I'm not speaking for the whole generation, right? We can see a whole group of, you know, absolutely up and coming. Prophets have always been with us. Right. Mm -hmm. I see, um, just a mindset of openness and welcoming that, you know, maybe for my generation, maybe we had when we were children, like really young children, but we very quickly lost that. And so Nat and I raised our kids differently. And I think that's one thing we do. I think we, don't have in common in this, in our story is how quickly I left the church. So I raised my kids outside the church from, from minute one. And I messed my kids up. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying I didn't mess my kids up. John messed but, his kids up differently. I just messed yeah. my kids up in the church. And honestly, like one day I'll interview you guys about like when they're in their twenties and thirties and like what baggage they're coming at you. Hey. It's like, why I'm there. Yeah. yeah tell, us, tell us when you want to do it. We're both there. <laughs> my kids are already in their 20s and 30s. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know I don't look it, right? This is amazing. You can't be yeah. to make everything very I can, I can tell. Yeah, it makes it so hard to judge. I might be 25 for all you know. Yeah. Um, I'm not. Um, <laughs> my youngest is 22. My oldest is 20, 28. And I can tell you exactly how I messed them up. Well, and I can tell, tell you from the perspective, not just of someone who was in church, but for someone who pursued heavily vocational ministry for so long and what kind of toll that takes on a kid. It's one thing to be involved in your church. It's one, it's another to aspire to vocational ministry and then feel like your kids have to be, they have to perform a certain way because that reflects on you. 
And my kids will tell you way too many conversations we had about the choices they made and the things that they did, how that reflected poorly on their pastor father. And it was unfair and unjust and bullshit. But, um, and John didn't have, John was like, go out and do whatever you want, kids. Get no, high and no, living no. Here, man. It's really no. fun. So know? The, the scary part is, so, you know, I keep, I keep bringing this up, but, I, you know, I left the church at such a young age. And then I, you know, I, I want to say that I lived this enlightened life where church didn't control how I did anything. But, you know, the formative, the formative years, right, you know, of me growing up in Sunday school and church and youth group and, you know, I was in church more than I wasn't in church a, a lot of times. And so, yeah, I, I had that baggage as I raised my kids. And one of the, one of the proudest things as a parent I could ever hear was your kids are so well behaved. You, when they're out in the world. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Yes. But you, you know, should and, see them at home. And, <laughs> and, I, and I, yeah. Well, then I, I'm, you know, joking, I say, well, that's not, that's not the kids I see at home. But, uh, but, and I was, you know, I, I beam with pride. Yeah. That I instilled this idea that they had to be little saints when they were out in the world. And that had to, and, and I know it did. You know, I've had conversations with my adult children about how stressful it was to not, be able to be a kid sometimes and, you know, make mistakes and be loud and be obnoxious. And because, you know, we'd have that conversation in the car on the way home if they, you know, stepped out of line. It's like, you know, that was embarrassing. How dare you make your mother and I look like bad parents? Oof. Well, and so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, I'm, I'm saying that in some ways because my kids are six and eight. So we are very much in those years of, mm-hmm. and as a woman who chose to continue working after I had children, which was... How dare you? A big, yeah. big no-no <laughs> growing up. Like, if you're not going to raise the kids, why have them? And why have them? I right can there, hear exactly. that in my head constantly. <laughs> yeah. Or like, well, you know, she's just not around. I'm totally around. <laughs> I work from home. But I do think two things. One it's kind of like we were talking about those un, those roots that you didn't know were there because yeah. yeah, you may have thrown off the church as one of the voices, but one, you replaced it with something else. You you found some school of thought or some voice or some somebody whose approval you wanted and you're going to use yeah. your kids to get it. And two, I think there's a resentment for those of us who leave church raising or want to raise our kids differently and that we want to prove, I don't want to speak for you, I want to prove that I didn't need your moralism to raise my right. kids. And yeah. so now the pressure's really on because if I, I think about this sometimes, if I had just stayed in the fundamentalist church and done it all right and quit working, and at least I can be like, I don't know what's wrong with them. I did everything right. Like, I don't yeah. know why so <laughs> but instead, I have to live with this constant uncertainty that the reason they're lashing out or the reason my son ran into the other room the other day and yelled, fuck you, Moira! <laughs> was because of something I've done. <laughs> I have to ask, though, who's Moira? Moira is the sisters, the big sister. Okay, okay. So he was First of all, justified. I was just, that's amazing. Um, I love that name, by the way. I can't think, I can't, it makes me think of Shit's Creek in about yeah. two seconds. I'm just like. <laughs> well, so she's Moira Sage instead of Moira Rose. Oh, that's amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point though. I hadn't thought about that. As John's telling his story, I hadn't thought about that. And I wonder if John had thought about like, were, was that a pressure for you? Like, okay, I, I know I'm not, mom and dad always gave you a hell of a time. 
you know, there was a lot of pressure to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of hand-wringing. There were lots of of behind closed, like talks between us about you. And we're really worried about John and we need to come back to church. We don't want to go to hell. Um, Yada, yada, yada. So I, but I I, I didn't, I, I tried not to participate in that too much, you know, but I wonder how much of that manifested itself as pressure on you for your kids to still be good kids lest they blame your departure from the church for them acting out and saying, fuck you, Moira. Um, <laughs> which is going to be my favorite thing all day. <laughs> it, was, it was in front of my parents, you guys. That's even better. I mean, all eyes turned to me. And I was like... What are you teaching this kid? Okay, I can, I can give... I, I, uh, um, mom and dad don't listen to this podcast, so I'll, I'll, tell, the, I'll tell this story. Um, so, Thank you, John. It, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I was very, into, I, I think I was, you know, subconsciously or consciously, I don't know. I think I was very aware of what was allowed and not allowed in my parents' house when my kids came over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I did expect them to be a certain way, to not out, act out in a certain way. And I felt like we were, that it was all going really well. And, uh, and then one day I got a, 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 my mom stopped me in the hall. At the house, and she's like, "I really, I really need to. I need you to talk to your children and talk, tell them they can't say, oh my God,' anymore." Uh... In our house. And I had never, I didn't even notice they were doing it. it did, it's because it's not, it's never been a problem for me. Um, swearing is allowed in our house. I mean, my kid, my my daughter has a better language than I do when it comes to swear words. Um, but that one never even occurred to me as being a problem, you know. But Nat, Nat can, Nat can. Um, it was a oh, yeah. group. Oh, yeah. um, but I mean, we, we weren't allowed to say the word but in our house. Right. Uh, you could say hell if you're, if you're talking about a place, but you couldn't tell someone like, what the hell is well, wrong with you? If you're talking about sending your neighbor there, then yes, right. you could right. say it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you, uh, damn. Couldn't, couldn't say geez. Right. Cause uh, I know what you mean. Right. So, but it was a shock. And I, and it, it was, it was one of those like, I let my parents down because my kids say, oh my God. And it was just, it's just part of the language. And honestly, I don't remember if I told them they shouldn't do it or not. I don't. I don't remember if I did. Um, hopefully, I didn't because that's just on. another. That's just another level of oh crap for them. And, but more than likely, I probably did because that's just where I was. So, I mean, if you were to ask my kids, they probably say that I did say something to them. I don't remember, but probably did. I say to my kids, and I've had to reach this piece too because my parents are very authoritarian, and I'm like, okay, if that's the relationship you choose to have. I'm not going to force them to see you. So yeah. you need to decide. Like you, you could be that way with us because where were we going to go? But when my kids say, I don't want to go there anymore because they're mean or they're whatever, they don't have to go. And similarly, like they, I tell my kids, like, look, these are their rules at their house. There's rules at school that aren't at home. You don't have to wear a uniform at home. You wear a uniform to school. There's, you know, at grandma's house, you have to, eat all the food on your plate. I don't care. Um, but there's different rules in different places. And I have very much kind of resigned myself to how they handle that is between you and them, but I'm not going to force that relationship. And so, and this, and I have told, I have in, in one uncharacteristic moment of, I'm not super confrontational, but in one, I did kind of say past my mom, but not not directly at her, but just enough so she could catch it. 
Like if they ever come home talking about body image or, you know, sexual ethics or anything like that, we're done. Because that stuff lodges yeah. and you can't get it out. Right. Um, but as far as they're like, wow, you're really mean and you really like overreact when we do something bad or you like, I'm not as worried about that because that's between them. I'm more concerned about, and I think that the the groundwork is pretty well laid on like, don't try to fundamentalize them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, yeah. And, and, and to our parents' defense, you know, this, my kids were pretty young at that point. So, you know, my, my oldest is 22, then I have a 20 year old and then my youngest is 17. So, I mean, my, my parents do recognize as my kids become adults that, that there's a different, there's a different level there. Right. So like, um, my two oldest kids live with their significant others, uh, which would have been something that I would have had to hide from. And I actually, I did hide from my parents, um, to the point of I lived with my girlfriend and had my own apartment too, mm-hmm. which was stupid. You know, I was paying, I was paying rent <laughs> for a place I didn't suffering live in. for your sins. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and to their credit, it's, it's, I know it's an issue. I know it's something that they don't like, but it, it never comes up. It's never brought up. Um, so I know that they, they, they can see the difference between talking about my six year old and talking about my 22 year old, right? I honestly think that as, I know this happened for my parents because the level of control and these, these stories are all in the book. Not all of them, not all of them. But some of the stories are in the book <laughs> about how much they felt the need to control when I was young to the, you know, right. like burning my toys and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, a, that was an interesting story. <laughs> it's true. Um, and I think yeah. a lot of people actually have similar stories. Um, oh yeah. Whether it was yeah. smashing CDs or burning books or whatever. Yeah. Uh, mine were Smurfs. Um, but then, and I, I opened the book with me calling home and saying my baptism theology had changed and my mom, you know, being over, she was being hyperbolic. She's very sardonic, but this, her funny reaction. And what I don't put in there is that later on, she would get the call from a different sibling that she was pregnant, (laughs) you know, Mm. and then another of my siblings is queer and another got married as soon as he graduated from high school, you know, and that oddly enough, even though my parents are very evangelical, they wanted us to all go to college. And so there was, my, my siblings would put them through the ringer enough that I think they, they had to decide, are we going to prioritize relationship or are we going to prioritize absolute? Yeah. And they, they, to their credit, chose relationship and they are, and I think they're going to choose that eventually. (laughs) Sadly, within this very current era of nationalism and, you know, with our former president, uh, the Black Lives Matter and how he reacted towards those protests, um, it became very okay to be a parent or a sibling to someone and really be hateful and mean towards them if they had even remotely came out against Trump or for Black Lives Matter or for the LGBTQIA community. They, it became very much okay to not only disagree with you, but very, very um, loud and, and with a lot of anger and a lot, and it's all directed at, well, first of all, I don't think it's directed at us for being allies. It's directed at the people that they Inherently don't like or don't trust, right? But they're, but we are the easy target 
within our family. And it, 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 it just seems like lately it's, it's very easy to like disown parts of your family and just disconnect and say, we're just, we're just, we don't want you around anymore. And I'll say, I have to admit that that has worked both ways because I, my, you know, the, the frustration and anger that leads my husband and I to have conversations about not whether it's with family or friends, cousins, you know, kids we went to college with, whatever, like, oh, we're, mm -mm, I'm cutting them off. Like so many people I was, so we went to Sweden this summer. My family's from Sweden. I went to go visit um, the ones who are still there this summer. And we just spent time with them. And it's like, oh my gosh, this country is not about to tear itself to pieces. This country is like so peaceful. And I was talking to them and they come visit regularly um, and love all the cousins and everybody. And we were talking about just the, the Trump years. And they were like, it's been so sad to watch America, like, turn on each other. Yeah. And from a distance, like, you know, in their, in their conversations with all sorts of people who they love over here, they've just been like, it's amazing to watch the intensity of, of how much this season has torn people apart. Right. And it really has, and it didn't occur to me until I went over there because it's gotten so normal now to feel very tribalized here and very, right. um, well, of course, I, I don't, I shouldn't have to talk to a hardcore Trumpy person. And to be like, oh yeah, it's not, it's not like that all over. We really have been through as a country since 2016, a, um, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're any more polarized. I'm not a political scientist, you know. But I will say the people I talk to in my job are way more anxious and keyed up and like ready to do extreme things. Mm -hmm. I can tell you anecdotally, I mean, I can, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I don't have, I, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, from a, with any, with any degree of certainty, but I can tell you how it feels and how it feels is my father and I, and I love him dearly, could routinely disagree about things in the past and we simply can't like we you know what I mean like 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 the last time I was home for a visit he baited me into a conversation that turned into a fight that I told him from the beginning I don't want to talk about this we don't agree and we don't have to agree it's totally fine and he wouldn't relent and he baited me into a fight and and then I'm of course of course I walk away from that interaction feeling bad and I'm embarrassed that I you know, that I, that I raised my voice and I got mad. And, um, but it was so different because we've had all kinds of disagreements in the past. Hell, he raised me. We don't agree, you know. But there was something, there was something about this. I have seen otherwise reasonable people sort of set reason aside and, and become really unreasonable on some things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know, you know. And so it, it's, it's, it's actually, I think John would agree, it's created a tension in our, in our immediate family that um, maybe was always there, maybe just brought it to the surface, but there has been more tension in those relationships in the last four, five, six years. And I lay that at the feet of, of, of Trump, you know, and, 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 Maybe that's maybe that's unfair. Maybe maybe Trump just brought out those existing things to the surface. But regardless, it's 
we went through the Bush years. We, hell, we went through the Obama years and we didn't fight as much about politics. Yeah, <laughs> my dad hated Obama. Good God. I think it, it just, I think there was a bringing it to the surface and also a creation of, I mean, Trump's whole political philosophy is to create a us, them conflict. Oh, absolutely. He's 100% a divide and conquer kind of yeah, guy, right? And the more I can make you feel like you're in a fight, the more yeah. you will give your loyalty to me. Leaders, strong arm leaders, uh, totalitarians or fascists or whoever, leaders who demand a lot of loyalty do best when people feel like they're in crisis. Yeah, so for I sure. do think that w- there has been a more of a feeling on on for all, for both sides of this debate of a feeling of like existential threat. I mean, on in my progressive world, it's the like you know all the memes about late stage capitalism and the world slowly burning down and <laughs> like this yeah, very exactly. apocalyptic language. That's the way we express our feeling of existential threat. And then I think the, the more conservative side expresses it as in this like taking America back and like kind of a, a more, we can still win this. <laughs> and yeah, well, and, and sadly, uh, it, it, if, if recent history is any indication, they, they can. Um, cause they have moved this country's, they've moved the needle politically more in the last, half dozen years and I've seen maybe in my lifetime I've, yeah. it just seems like yeah and again I don't have the data to back that up but it yeah. seems like I've lived you know I'm, I was born in the 70s for God's sake <laughs> so I've lived through you know I, I've yeah. lived through Carter and Reagan both Bushes yeah. you know I've lived through Clinton and Obama and 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 yeah there was it was always divisive you're right about that it, I don't think there's been a time in this country where we weren't somewhat divided mm-hmm. but it does seem like that that polarization has gotten deeper and a little more yeah. vitriolic. It's the vitriol. Um, it's the like, it's the level of anger and anxiety. Yeah. That is a, more alarming to me. Like, I don't yeah. think these people are disagreeing over things they wouldn't have disagreed about in the past, but what they're willing to do to back it up is terrifying to me. Whether it's yeah. cutting out oh, relationships then, or shooting FBI people. Oh, yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I don't have to look farther than uh, one of my favorite sh- all-time shows of Saturday Night Live to say um, SNL from day one, one of the things they did is they made fun of the president, right? Yeah. They didn't care if they were Republican, Democrat, they oh, didn't yeah. care. They made fun of him, every single one. And it wasn't until Trump that all of a sudden this became not okay. Right. It's right. Been, isn't it? Very, very vocal about how horrible it was for SNL to make fun of the president, mm-hmm. which they had done. I mean, I watched SNL make fun of Gerald Ford, you know, Carter, <laughs> yeah, everybody, uh, man, yeah. uh, Reagan, Clinton, uh, all of them. Yeah, it was part of their their stick, right? It was to make fun of the the most powerful man in our country, and they got and they got away with it because it was funny, and we all up. kind of agreed. How many does? Right. And for some reason with, with, with the, with the orange Cheeto, um, <laughs> Jesus, all of a sudden that's just not okay. And you're, you're tearing apart America. You're breaking down the most, you know, you, you can't do this. It's like, what do you mean we can't? I've been watching this since I was a little kid. We've always done this. This has been part of our, our process. I mean, Gerald Ford tripped once. Yeah. Once. <laughs> he tripped forever. 
And they turned him into a guy who bumbled down every yeah. set of stairs he ever walked down. Come on, man. Yeah. It, it, it is what we do. You know, the, uh, I, I don't know. I, I hate to, I hate to be the guy that says I gotta, I gotta, I gotta bounce, but I do have to bounce. Um, cause really Becky, this has been yeah. great. Yeah. I really, so really fun. enjoyed this. And, and I cannot recommend enough the book, yeah. bringing up kids when church lets you down. I think it really does fill a much needed. We've, there's been lots and lots of people writing about deconstruction, uh, and very few. I think you're one of two people that I know of who have, who have kind of tackled the, okay, now what? You know, not, not, not how do we reconstruct our faith? Cause that's the next thing that's probably coming. But how do we do this while raising kids? Right. While we're in the, uh, the only other thing that I think would be really interesting would be a book from a sitting pastor who, how do you deconstruct while pastoring a church? Jeff Turner, if you're listening, you should write this book because that that's where the rubber really hits the road, right? Yeah. I mean, deconstructing for yourself and your own, it has its own set of consequences. Um, but when you bring in that parenting angle, I think, man, it's really, really unique and interesting. And I think it's something that's very relatable. So never mind the fact that it's very well written. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. Your humor yeah. is on point. Um, <laughs> how to lose your faith and keep it off. Come on, that's a that's a phenomenal <laughs> chapter heading. Thank that, you. That was, I love that. Yeah. But, and that's... So maybe that's why maybe that's why I I like it so much. It kind of yeah, I think our I think our senses of humor are, are similar. But um, yeah, really really good. I, I I can't wait for it to drop in October. Can't wait to see it race up to the top of the charts and do really well. Um, John and I will do our level best to get you at least four or five more readers. Um, Every book we'll get it to our, we'll get it to our audience of literally dozens. And oh, uh, come on, we're 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 a little bit better. I than saw that. your download stats. I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> Several hundred dozens, but it's dozens still. <laughs> it's like telling somebody your 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 kid is like you know seven you know two hundred and forty months old. But yeah, I really I appreciate your time. Thank you so yeah. much for coming yeah, on. Thank you very much, and uh, good luck with everything. I hope the book just just does great. Thank you so much. You betcha. Yeah. And John and I will obviously will link to everything uh, in our show notes. So all of your, yeah. all of your social media stuff, if you've got it, we'll, we'll link to that. Make sure and drive as much traffic that way as we can. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this is not church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash this is not church where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.